All right, good morning. So we have a, a lot of slides to go through and we wanna leave some time for questions at the end. So we're gonna get right to it. Uh, but I will say it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to have friends and colleagues that you can uh, talk on this. And I consider both uh, John and Jim uh, that. And I think what makes our trauma program so successful is the um, collaboration that we have with uh, emergency medicine and neurosurgery and ortho and all of the medical and surgical subspecialties here. <clears throat> so first things first, um, these are patients that we've taken care of. Actually, these are all patients of mine that we've taken care of over the years. And these are the types of injuries that fortunately are infrequent, but they do happen. And it highlights the importance of uh, all of us uh, to know how to deal with these things when they occur. And we are actually gonna be teaching a Stop the Bleed course in one of the conference rooms off of the cafeteria immediately after this. So if anyone wants to come and learn about how to um, apply a, a cat tourniquet and just some basics of bleeding control. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't have to be a terrorist event. It can be a window breaking or a car crash. We will teach that to anyone who's interested. And uh, if you come and take the course, you just might get a cat tourniquet out of it. So uh, please consider coming to that. So we have a very um, ambitious agenda that we're each gonna tackle a small piece of, and I'm gonna start by talking a little bit about mass uh, casualty basics. So uh, this is a friend of mine here, Deb Kuehls, uh, who's an adult trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. And you probably can't read her name tag there, but it says Las Vegas, Nevada. And uh, she's the chair of the Injury Prevention Committee of the, uh, of the Committee on Trauma, and I work with her closely. And this is a paper that we published in the Journal of Trauma last year. And the, the, the sad irony of it is she's the lead author. She lives in Las Vegas. Ronnie Stewart's the head of the COT and practices in San Antonio. And both of them were on the receiving end of mass casualty incidents. Uh, and they're two folks who are working tireless, tirelessly to prevent uh, gun violence in this country. So we, we have a lot of work to do in the prevention realm, but we also have a lot of work to do in preparing for these MCI events. So this is just a, a list of five that have happened within the state of Connecticut over the last seven years. You don't know when they're gonna happen, uh, but they are gonna happen and you have to be ready for it. And if you're trying to get ready for it the day that it happens, you're gonna be in trouble. So I was on call uh, for adult trauma at Hartford Hospital on a Friday night um, in September of 2016 and a deck collapsed at Trinity College. And uh, we learned a lot about how not to respond to a mass casualty event that night. Uh, they were doing the triage indoors, which is not smart if you're worried about radiation contamination. There was a reluctance to actually activate the, the, the protocol for mass casualty because it was already busy and there were a lot of errors uh, that happened. And we, we didn't, you know, you're not going to be critical of Hartford Hospital. We're going to say, how can we get better at that? And the way you get better is to drill. And this is a drill that we had in our emergency department uh, where things are happening as they should. You can see the triage nurse at work outside of the emergency department so that you can control flow through the ED. Heather Buck, you can't miss her, she's so tall as the, as the charge nurse in the ED, and Dr. Weiss and the surgical team assembling in an orderly fashion right inside the emergency department door. So a question that John, Jim, and I asked ourselves a few years ago is, you know, do we have a good plan for a mass casualty event? And when we drilled down on it, we found some things that were really, quite frankly, alarming. <clears throat> this is a plan that's, that's outdated now, but it says the assessment of patients will follow the same procedure and guidelines during emergencies as during routine times. That is absolutely untrue and was absolutely a part of our plan. So that's something that's changed. If you apply the same principles 
during a time when you've got a huge casualty load to um, the time when you're, you ordinary, the way you ordinarily treat patients, you're absolutely going to fail. And what's hard as clinicians in this circumstance is that it, you, have to, it, you have to treat patients in a way that at other times would actually be morally repugnant because you're treating them differently and you're allowing patients to die, which is something that we're not used to doing. Uh, but it's something that really has to be done during casual, uh, mass casualty incidents. So this is sort of the overall plan that you sort of see outlined. We're going to spend our time dealing with uh, operations, which is the part which is most important for us as clinicians. So just a little bit of background, it, you know, I'm stating the obvious by saying that during an MCI event, there's a mismatch between the number of patients you're getting and the resources that you have to treat them. Yeah, you have to get prepared quickly because about half the patients are going to get there within the first hour and virtually all of them are going to get there within two, two and a half hours. And the real challenge that you have through the triage process is that you have to identify that one in five patients who's critically injured and the rest who are kind of the walking wounded. You need to get them out of the way so you can do your job. So there are some things that are applied and really important to apply to these events is that you need standard operating procedures. You have to constantly pay attention to overwhelming your capacity, your surge capacity. And you need an all-hazards approach. So it doesn't matter whether it's a school bus crash that we see a couple times a year, whether it's an explosion or whether it's a plane crash at Bradley. We're going to apply the same principles every time, and we're going to do it the same way every time so we can get most of it right. And you have to drill. There was a great uh, uh, review in the, or an editorial in the New England Journal of Medicine after the Boston Marathon bombing that said, we fight like we train. And if you practice, you'll know how, and you're, you practice and get the basics down, you'll know what to do when the actual thing happens. And the, one of the key things that John's going to address in his uh, part of the talk is, uh, is overcrowding in the ED. So some pitfalls we've learned from other events, uh, poor security, uh, that, it's something that you have to have a low threshold for lockdown. Uh, in the aftermath of 9-11, communication failure was an issue. And a lot of places learn the hard way, if you don't practice, you don't get there. There are four basic elements that are really our rate-limiting steps that, uh, that you have to be aware of as you go into these events. The number of ventilators that we have, uh, the number of PICU beds that we have and that we can expand to, uh, the number of operating rooms we have, and then the number of, uh, not only the number of surgeons, but the number of staffs to support the surgeons, uh, the ER docs, and the trauma team. Uh, if anybody's interested, once a year we teach a disaster management and emergency preparedness course here. We've taught a lot of folks in the hospital from techs to nurses to physicians. Uh, it's a, it's a day-long course, but it's well worth it if you want to understand the basics. So I'm going to conclude by saying, uh, or by quoting George Patton, plans should be simple and flexible. And we have a, have a checklist that's just the front and back of two pages that all the surgeons will soon be carrying around when uh, we have finalized it. And it basically tells you how to activate the MCI, the number to call, uh, initiate a lockdown if it's warranted in the ED, uh, establish triage, and triage is an error tolerant system. We expect the triage officer and the triage nurse to make mistakes, and that is okay. Uh, then once uh, that's established, you assemble the trauma teams right inside the ED. We put on these vests, we're all gonna be wearing them. They have your roll right on the back. Uh, and it seems silly, but it's important. And part of the reason we're wearing them today is that so people will uh, see them. And then finally, there has to be collaboration with the other trauma centers. We, um, we, we're going to collaborate that, you know, Hartford and St. Francis can take care of older kids. 
You need to be ready when your electronic system breaks down. Uh, in the Boston Marathon bombing, surgeons were writing on their scrubs uh, when uh, they couldn't register patients on Epic. Uh, we don't do CAT scans, and we really want to limit the number of labs and x-rays we use. The surgeons will be performing damage control procedures, keeping them brief and just doing what needs to be done, and we already talked about ER overcrowding. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jim, and we'll keep rolling. How I became the bald eagle in Alaska, I'm not exactly sure, but okay. Um, so my part of this talk is to discuss where do we lie in preparedness for the state of Connecticut. The slide I have up there now shows you the way that the Department of uh, Office of Emergency Medical Services and Emergency Management and Homeland Security view Connecticut. We have five regions. We are separated into those regions, which is a good and a bad thing. Obviously, if you have everybody at the same table trying to plan, you're not going to get a whole lot done. But then how separate are these regions? This is a very wordy slide, but I took it right out of our Emergency Medical Services Universal Protocols for the state of Connecticut. Successful management of any MCI depends on the effective cooperation, organization, and planning among healthcare professionals, hospital administrators, and out-of-hospital EMS agencies, state and local government representatives, and individuals and or organizations associated with disaster-related support agencies. That barely touches on the complexity of all the people that come to the table when we activate a state response for emergency management. But at least gives you some idea of all the different players. We talk a lot about hospital preparedness. All those patients getting to us and how many come to us. For everybody who's been in our ED when there's a bus crash, we don't need all 30 patients coming directly to us if emergency medicine, emergency medical services are doing their job and separating them appropriately, triaging them to the different facilities, avoiding that ER overcrowding. So the way I look at Connecticut, good or bad, we do have our five regions. We have 169 towns. Those of us in emergency medical services often refer to them as the fiefdoms because mm -hmm. nobody likes to be told how to do it in their town or what needs to be done that's going to help the system. 238 EMS agencies, 32 acute care hospitals, 11 of them as designated trauma centers. The one thing that nobody really knows about until it comes, there are 34, they've been called mask decontamination trailers, they're also being called uh, disaster management trailers now. But what's in those trailers? I asked that question in an emergency preparedness meeting a couple years ago and nobody could answer me. Talking about our trauma centers, as Brendan said, you've got Hartford, you've got St. Francis locally. We have all of these other hospitals. When Sandy Hook happened, we were already standing up and making ready a response for any of those patients that would need to be transported. And that's the expectation when Connecticut stands up an emergency response that the trauma centers are ready. So, okay, backing off to the state of Connecticut and what do we have on paper? What's our actual plan? Well, like I said, there are five regions. This is the Region 3 Emergency Support Plan, the capital region, our region. It does provide a guidance and a framework for the communities of Region 3. There's very little in it that talks about how do we talk to Regions 1, 2, 4, and 5. We look at incidents that surpass the capability of the local community and mutual aid agreements. Again, I have a background in EMS. I know all about mutual aid. So Glastonbury has a response. Who do they call for help? They're not going to activate an MCI immediately. They're going to call over to Manchester. They're going to call out to Hebron or Marlboro. So you try to mobilize your local supports before you go outside of that realm. 
Any individual showing up on scene has to know when to activate that mass casualty, when to say, no, this is too much. And there's no way to prescribe that specifically. If AMR shows up to a scene, AMR can handle a whole lot internally, and they will. We're trying to break them of that habit because we need to get the system activated. We need to actually get the group response going. There is a statement of ongoing escalation. And then we've got regional and state assets that are all available once we actually push that mass casualty button. What are those assets? Well, I mentioned those mass decon trailers. There are 11 of them in our region. They will show up to a scene. They will show up to a hospital. It's part of Hartford Hospital's plan when we have a mass decon is to bring a trailer over. They're usually stationed at fire companies local to the big cities, local to the big fire departments so that they can actually get run. There's a regional hazardous materials response team. Because as Brendan said, this is an all hazards approach. We can't just say this is the mass shooting or the bus crash. What about the tanker truck that rolled over in the midst of that crash? Or we've had mass casualties that are a mercury spill at a local school. How do we deal with those things? There are different emergency response teams with different specialties available. There's a medical reserve corps that I'll talk about in a little bit. This is one thing I got involved with in my time in Atlanta when all the national focus was on mass casualty and preparedness. It was identified that we needed to have stockpiles of pharmaceuticals available for these incidents. So there was a lot of discussion of, okay, what do we have in our stockpiles? How do we have that pediatric friendly? Who's going to be the expert to tell us what we need, what we don't need for kids? It got down to the point of which laryngoscopes can we skip? Can we get away with a one and a three? Do we need a two? So a lot of those discussions had to be brought forth by pediatric experts. There are police emergency service units and rehab units, and that's predominantly for firefighters and other staff on the scene to be able to recover and go back in. So there's this wonderful thing called the emergency credentialing program. So if some major event were to happen on the shoreline and they needed staff, a lot of those hospitals don't have the numbers that they would need to be able to care for any large number of patients. And one thing we've learned in pediatrics is our patients are portable. Not every patient's going to show up via EMS. It's not going to be necessarily as organized as it could be. So how are we going to do this? About 6% of the medical providers in the state, and that includes physicians, advanced practitioners, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, paramedics, lab personnel, radiology personnel, about 6% are registered through OEMS for this emergency credentialing process. Their goal was to get up to about 10%, but this allows the state to walk in and say, no, this person's good, this person's credentialed, we've done their background check, they can take care of patients here. If you're not hospital-based, it's a great opportunity to be able to contribute when it hits. And that's not something that really becomes a part of any individual hospital's plan. But it's a great thought if we were to get hundreds to potentially even thousands of victims from some event, be that man-made or nature-made, to have those hands and have those people to be available. There's a connection on the OEMS website that will uh, give you more information on that. I'm not going to get into it. The one other good thing about it, because the state does the background, the state sponsors your liability and your workman's comp for those, in, for those episodes. There's a mass decon unit. 
you've driven around different parts of the state, you might have seen one of these parked outside a fire company. Again, what's in it? It's getting updated. There was absolutely nothing pediatric size for covering the patients. It was a big old hospital gown. If you had a two-year-old, they were going to be in a big old hospital gown. So we finally talked about getting appropriate clothing, appropriate things for children that would be able to recover afterward. These decon units can be mobilized within about 30 minutes. They can be stood up. They can decontaminate 100 to 120 patients an hour. That's great. That's a heck of a lot faster than we can decon anybody. But it's still only 100 to 120 patients an hour. There are a couple of these trailers around Bradley. That's one of our biggest concern areas for a crash. Obviously, with airplane fuel, we would expect there need to be a decon. This is something that changed when Sandy Hook became the big news that it was. There was always a thought of you can't go into a scene in EMS till the scene is safe. You cannot provide care for a patient until you know you will be safe. One of the bits of information that came out and was discussed after Sandy Hook, there was nobody that in that incident could have been saved by earlier extrication from the scene. But the question was raised, what about those times when there is? So there's been developed a tactical emergency medical support team where they will go in with the police officers. They usually are part of the police force. And while they're being protected by the people who are doing the sweeps and trying to find the active shooter or the responsible party, they can do an initial approach to the patient they can provide hemorrhage control, probably with their tourniquets first. They can get them rapidly extracted to other medical providers who are in a safer environment so that we can hopefully increase survivability from any of these incidents. Another resource in this state is the Mobile Field Hospital. I've heard it discussed many times in emergency preparedness meetings, lots of discussion of well, if we really have it hit the fan, we'll just we'll activate the mobile field hospital. No, that can't be part of your emergency plan. Same as the general adult hospitals, who part of their pediatric emergency response plan was, oh, we'll send them to children's. If you're full of kids, you think we're not? So you need to think about what resources you have. This is an option, but it's a long-term option. The mobile field hospital can provide up to 100 additional beds at 25 beds per unit. It takes a few hours to set up, then you have to staff it, or you actually have to staff it to set it up. Most of the staffing comes from DMAT, the Disaster Medical Assistance Team. It's a federalized team. We have one in Connecticut. Actually, two of our transport nurses are part of that team. Actually, one of them is the director of the team. <laughs> um, and it can provide triage and treatment. It can be an ICU level of care for patients going forward in a situation where there's a long, overwhelmed situation for the hospitals. But it's not going to be your emergency response. It's not going to be the first 75% of patients to show up within two hours. So when I think mass casualty, really looking at all those different possibilities of how it's going to happen, figuring out What's going to be different about the car crash versus the train rollover versus the mass shooting or the plane crash? How are we going to manage them differently? And as Brendan said, we shouldn't. 
we need to have the same thought process going in. Now it may be we have five patients. Great, triage them, get them where they need to be, care for them. It may be we have 75 patients. As long as you approach it with the same rational thought process, you're going to get the care done. In Connecticut, we use smart triage. We have smart triage tags available in the emergency department. If you look at this, you go down pretty quickly. Is the patient breathing or not? If they're not, reposition their airway. They're still not breathing. This isn't a general ER moment of intubate the patient and provide advanced care. When you're in an overwhelmed situation, that patient is felt to be dead. And that's a hard one to swallow. If you've ever been on one of these scenes, that's a hard one to swallow when you live critical care medicine, trauma surgery, emergency medicine. But while that patient is taking all of your resources, how many of what would be an immediate? So the patient's breathing, but is unstable. They're not gonna get care. What's gonna happen next? So this framework is in the mind of every EMS provider out there when they approach a scene. They have to focus their efforts on where they're going to do the greatest good for the greatest number. One of the projects I worked on with one of my colleagues at uh, Yale was training EMS providers with a video game on how do you approach triage. And there were some videos of people performing afterward. The great part is you walk in the room and say, hey, can anybody hear me and walk to me? Great, you're green, done. Easiest way to filter those numbers off. And then getting through what's next and what's next. And one thing we found is universally, pediatric patients were never made expectant or black or deceased because nobody, nobody wanted to go there. Nobody wanted to give up. This is one of the ways to manage all those numbers. You see those wonderful colored tarps. I know both of you were at uh, Bradley for the last uh, disaster drill that they did where they set out their tarps. The tarps are great if you know how to use them. If you don't drill it, you'll never figure it out. You have this gray colored tarp, but how close are they? How are you differentiating between a red and a green in that corner? What care is being provided in those different areas? That's not an effective way of managing a scene. That's a little more organized, but the main part of this slide was to realize you've got fire, you've got EMS, you've got police, you've got all these different agencies that have to work together. So what's our greatest pitfall in any emergency in the pre-hospital arena? Communication. I mentioned it at the beginning. We are a town, we are a state full of fiefdoms. There are regional dispatch centers, there are interagency communication issues. There are Coordinated Medical Emergency Direction, or CMED. John will laugh a little bit when I say that. He's been to our CMED. And to be honest with you, the North Central CMED is the most organized, most efficient one in the state. But it's not sufficient for the communication that needs to happen when we have a huge event. There is ongoing improvement to that technology, ongoing improvement to the education for those people. But if we don't talk, if we don't have good communication, if we don't get those contact radio calls from the scene to tell us how many are coming our way and what we need to do next and what we need to prepare for, we're setting ourselves up for failure. So I'm working on the pre-hospital arena 
all of us are working on within hospital arena, though at this point I'll turn it over to Dr. Martin, who's doing a lion's share of that work at the moment, and talk about what we're doing within the hospital. All right, so who in the room, we're feeling good now, who knows what they're supposed to do if they activate a code orange right now? Hands up, where are you gonna be? All right, a relatively small number, which is uh, accurate. A lot of this, we sit down, you can attend, I'm just taking this off, you, you, can, you, you can attend a lot of these courses. You can go to the disaster management course, you can go online, you can take some of these courses, but at the end of the day, when the rubber meets the road, when you end up here at CCMC, you know, what do I do? And it's a good question, and hopefully we can talk at least a little bit about that here. It's not business as usual. Uh, I'll tell you at CCMC, it is a work in progress. It's something we're struggling and we are making progress on. The processes are improving. Um, uh, this question, is planning really necessary? Do we really need to have that discussion? Um, not a week goes by that there isn't something that's going on. And it's, you know, it's, it's the lottery. Okay, it's an unhappy lottery. But sooner or later, it's coming back here, I can promise you. Um, and honestly, we've been, you know, uh, how many people were here this day? Um, coming up on five years ago? I remember hearing about this sitting here saying, holy shit, you know, this is, this is really, this is gonna come. And then the horrible news when nothing did. Um, uh, we're not gonna get that lucky uh, again. I can promise you at some point something's gonna happen. So how do we work? How do we do this? The reality is everyone who's sitting in this room is a healthcare professional in some way, uh, shape, or form. We have ancillary folks, we have, uh, uh, we have other clinical folks, we probably have some administrators in the room. And the reality is that, uh, and I think the way we practice right now, the way we practice here today, it's very siloed. And we can do good work, no question about it. Small volume patients, we can do good work. We can have our administrators working, our clinicians working, our ancillary folks working. But if we can work together, okay, the product that we get, we can do a lot better. And what happens when we don't? Well, I love this, okay, this is pretty close. Anyone got a second grader in the room? You ever go to a soccer game? Okay, so here we go. This is what you can count on. Is the video, oh no. It's not gonna work? I'm so disappointed. Good luck. Go to the bottom. I'm going. Over to the right. Over to the right? Can you come? You have a little power. I do, but there's no, there's no. Over, over, two more. I don't know if it's gonna work, but. No. Okay, so bottom line, so have you ever been to a rodeo, okay, where they have the kids at the beginning of this? So they take like all the kids, they pull them down out of the stands, they line them up, they take three little bulls and they, they put a flag on them and they say go. Uh, and that's our trauma response right now. Basically everybody just comes and they crowd the room uh, and they make a mess. Um, and the reality is for three or four casualties it works, okay? Um, for six casualties it works. The more we get, it's not going to work. And ultimately what you end up with is a mess. Somebody gets the flag, everybody smiles, but it's not great. So let's go through a couple of things that can help you get organized and be pretty specific about what your role is in a code orange and what your role is not in a code orange. Uh, we're gonna talk about a def definition, talk a little bit about some other things, some categories and levels, some geography. You know, Where do these things exist within the hospital? How do we communicate? and talk about two different chains of command, the administrative chain of command and the clinical chain of command. Right now, the communication between the two is not great, it's improving, um, uh, and we'll go from there. 
So definition of code orange at this institution, okay, so first of all, as, as Brendan talked about, this is when your casualties exceed your resources. And here at CCMC, that's defined as six casualties. We get six casualties coming in. That's gonna be some degree of a mass casualty here. That may not seem like a lot to you. I can promise you as a guy who sits here and uses the resources within the, within the institution, it's a lot. Brendan, how many ORs realistically do you think we can get going in a trauma sit, uh, situation, say at five o'clock in the afternoon? Probably three if we're lucky. Yeah, three if we're lucky, and I think that's pretty accurate, and probably not three right away. Again, we're having all these casualties arrive. The game's pretty much up at two hours. Think about that, okay? Now, we're, it's not abstract anymore. It's not some sort of MCI slide. It's these are real things that are happening here in the hospital, okay? How do we staff that? I mean, just thinking, thinking about this and think about when you work anywhere in the hospital, how many people are here, how many people are around. In general, this is what we talk about in terms of staffing ratios for the existing ED patients, because there will be patients that are here. Okay, we're gonna end up having one MDAPP who's taking care of those along with some of the other resources you see there per 10 patients. For green, yellow, and red, okay, the green and yellow patients, you're talking you know, uh, relatively comparable staffing ratios to what you see there, a little more for yellow. And then for red, what we have set up is one MD, one, R, one RN, one PCA per patient. Can you see us getting pretty rapidly depleted in terms of what's in the emergency room? Do you think it's really easy to sit there and say, hey, go grab somebody from the sixth floor or the seventh floor or the eighth floor? Can you understand why a chain of command becomes really, really important? And your role being where you should be so that you can be leveraged is important. Trauma team positions, this is how we have things set up. If you've been down to the trauma bay, we got stickers that are gonna be going on the floor. Are they there yet? Not yet. Okay, they will be. This is our setup, okay, with an airway provider, you know, a trauma assessment provider. We got two RNs and a respiratory therapist. This is what we do under normal circumstances. Are we realistically gonna be able to do this if we've got five red casualties down in our emergency room? No, okay? We start shrinking it down to a staffing ratio that looks more like this. A little more challenging? You bet. Uh, event categories. Um, we've talked a little bit about all response, uh, sort of code orange, mass casualty events. And it's a good thing. In terms of you want to have an all hazards response, but in general, it's not a bad idea to, despite the fact you, you respond the same way every time, you do have some thought processes about some different events that you can face because they'll be different. A mass casualty event, Absolutely, I want Brendan down there on point, running point, directing things as a trauma resource officer. Jim's gonna be see there as the phys physician in charge doing a lot of the communication. What happens though if we have something else that's going on? What if we have you know, a mass chlorine exposure? Probably not the best guy to be there. So you know, we do have to have some changes that can happen in terms of staffing and planning depending on what's going on relative to this. Levels of activation. Who's even aware that we have levels of activation for a code orange? Raise your hand if you've, you've heard of that before. Okay, some people are in the audience, it's good. Um, I will tell you that typically when we do uh, a code orange overhead, I don't normally hear us indicate that, probably should, so people are aware of the relative level of activation that goes on. In general, you see three, three general categories here, and what are they based on? What resources we're gonna use? Are they ER or ho like whole hospital system? So for up to six casualties, you see the level one, level two, it's really an ER-only response. Those are the people who are gonna be involved. We don't have to have the whole hospital uh, uh, revved up and uh, rolling other than maybe the operating room for the reds. 
When we start to get to level three and four, now we've got more casualties that are rolling in, more reds that are here. Now we really do need a hospital response. Now we absolutely need an active command center that's doing uh, what they need to be doing, which is communicating with different areas inside and outside the hospital to make sure we have everything we need. And when we start stepping up to level five and level six, where we are actually asking the question, is our local and regional infrastructure in place? That's a completely different response and a different mindset, largely for the administrators. The clinicians are going to be sitting there focused on what they're doing. But in the administrator silo, if you will, completely different response in terms of what you need to be thinking about if you are there. Floor map of the emergency room. One thing we sat here and talked about uh, earlier, we talked about red, we talked about yellow, we talked about green. Where, you know, where do those casualties go? Okay, And you know, we actually have in our plans, those things are designated. So our red casualties, you can see here going to 712, 24, 25. Yeah, that's it, that's all we have in terms of space that's designated for those casualties. Again, it's four rooms, just sitting here thinking about how many casualties you're gonna be able to handle. Um, uh, staffing ratios, again, we talked about one-to-one, -one. nurse, RN, PCAs are in there. We talk about our casualties that are yellow, okay? We're keeping them close, but they're sticking in these rooms. Again, uh, you know, staffing ratio is a little bit higher. And then finally, greens, and, and the way that's set out currently, it's in the radiology uh, hallway. I, I'll sort of reserve editorial, uh, uh, my editorial on that, which uh, I, I think that, that ends up uh, introducing at least some problems with casualty flow, because what do we want to be doing? As Brendan talked about, triaging appropriately, oftentimes outside if we can. You think we're going to be able to effectively triage outside in 22 degree weather if we don't have something set up outside? It's going to be a challenge. So probably today, if you ask me where are we triaging, inside. Optimal? No, certainly not if we have uh, uh, people who are dirty. And then moving on through and directing flow. But that casualty flow, moving patients through, is important. Anyone in this room ever make a decision to palliate a patient, to sit there and say, you live, you die? It's not a lot of fun, okay? Somebody who you know under certain circumstances probably is salvageable, but not in the circumstances you're in. <laughs> but you've got to be able to do it. And again, as Jim brings up, doing it in children, very, very challenging. Other key locations. So we talked about patient entry. We talked about red, green, yellow. This is important, bullpen. That's our own term that we have here. That means stay the hell out of the way, okay? If you're a provider in the emergency room and you aren't directly involved, you go there. It's basically behind the desks. Stay out of the trauma rooms. If you're not supposed to be there, don't be there. You're probably in the way. That includes neurosurgery, by the way. If they need me at the bedside, they can call for me. Um, help things to move forward. Command center, conference rooms. Uh, I know some of these are moving depending on some space issues in the hospital. And the labor pool up on 4G. Uh, these are all places where you could potentially be sent. So just be aware where they are today. Um, uh, know that they can move. How do we communicate in a mass casualty? It can be different depending on what happens. Cell phone systems can absolutely be down in real mass casualties, right? We still have overhead paging. Um, the paging system may or may not work. Internal phone lines may or may not work. Cell phone texts we talked about. The intranet is a tool that's used. We'll talk a little bit about that. Many people in the room are probably aware of that. Probably some of you aren't in terms of the communication tool that we have from the floors coming down uh, to the command center in terms of doing that. Radios, um, the reality is that in you know, the initial stage of a mass casualty, radios are crap, okay? Has anyone ever sat through one of the sort of uh, check-ins at the beginning, it takes about seven or eight minutes. What's happened in seven to eight minutes down in the emergency room? A lot. 
So it's a good system to know, but understand there's a lot of different ways to communicate here. Some of them you may be able to leverage, some not, depending on what's going on relative to the mass casualty. Busy slide. Bottom line, there's an awful lot of people in the emergency room who are involved. Probably the two most important groups of providers are the physician in charge and the trauma resource officer. The physician in charge is the person, uh, along with the nurse in charge, that's making a decision most of the time in terms of this is a mass casualty, let's go. And they're also doing the, the lion's share of the communication with the command center and saying, I need this, push me this, give me what I need. Because while the job action sheet that Brendan put up is great, if you're really busy, you cannot be the trauma resource officer and be calling the operating room and calling the floors. That's not what you're there for. Um, and that's why, again, the silo mentality for mass casualties has got to go. We've got to be administrators. We've got we've to use the efficiencies in the system. So what are the real goals here? You've got to designate your clinical areas of operation. Jim says, my greens are here, my yellows are here, my reds are here. You have to assign your team. Brendan, you're going to be my trauma resource officer. I need you to appoint however many clinical assessment teams you need. John, you're going to take care of the existing ER casualties. We're going to pop someone down from IMT. You know, call the command center, get someone down from IMT who's going to take care of uh, our yellows uh, and or greens. So what are we doing here? Okay, we're doing an assessment, we're delegating, and then we're, we're serving the patients. But it's very, very important that that administrative aspect of this is happening, has to, at the level of the physician in charge. How about the incident command, the administrative folks? What are they doing? Honestly, in the initial stages, the first two hours of a mass casualty, probably not a whole lot. What they're doing is they're looking to the physician in charge to say, tell me what it is that's going on, because I have no idea. Tell me what it is you need, and I will get you those resources. And then if we're going beyond two hours, now they're snapping into action, saying, I have a planning team and an operations team and a logistics team to get you the stuff you need, to get you the people you need, and to make this happen. What do we do if this goes for 10 hours or 12 hours or three days? How are we, re how are we resupplying? How are we getting people rest? How are we getting people in? That's what these folks are here to do. And so understanding their role and when it's really, really important uh, uh, is important. So how does a code orange get activated? First thing we've got to do is recognize it. In 2017, there's a million ways for that to happen. It can be CNN, okay? Uh, it can be local radio. More likely, it's going to be some influx of casualties or communication from Jim's folks in CMED saying, hey, we got some stuff coming your way. And there's probably not going to be a lot of notice. At that point, the physician in charge, the nurse in charge, really, really important. You got, you got to quickly do something for me. You need to classify the event. Is it a mass casualty? Is it a weather event? What is it? So we just know what to expect. What level of activation? What can I anticipate in terms of ballpark, reds, yellows, and greens? Okay, because I, I need to make plans for both me and to let the administration know so that they can get rolling. And then really importantly, how are we going to initially process this? If we have dirty casualties and they come through the door, we're done. That's the end of your event. Okay, you're closed. So you can't do, you cannot make that mistake. The physician and nurse in charge can't make the mistake of letting dirty folks come in through the door. How long do we have to make that decision? Not long. It takes one person walking through the door to close you. Okay, we got to decon them, and decon is easy, folks. It's strip them and you know, basically wash them down with a little bit of water. It's not hard to do. Just taking clothes off makes a big difference there. And do we need additional security? Okay, our security folks are great. There aren't a whole lot of them. Uh, we need to be aware that not only are casualties going to try to get in, there may be second hit bad guys trying to get in. 
there's certainly going to be families who are interested in happening, uh, what's going on with their kids. And we learned that that was the, uh, the balcony collapse. We had one irritated family member who ended up taking three or four uh, security personnel over to Hartford Hospital, making them mission ineffective. That's one guy. Think about that. How do we activate it? So now we've recognized that we've done our initial assessment. Basically, this is simple. Now we've got the physician in charge who's notifying the bed manager, AOD, admin on call. And it's, if the administrator's not available, the bed manager can activate this. Just call the command center. Can I activate a code orange? No. Can you activate a code orange? Well, if you're not the bed manager, physician in charge, or AOD, no. But that's the process of how this happens. Okay, five to ten minutes. What do we need to do? Okay, if you are the physician in charge or the administrator, who, what, where, when, why? What the hell's going on? How big is this? How long am I anticipating this is going to go on? Security and decon, we got to know that up front. Okay, geography, where am I going to actually put these casualties? And then what assets do I need? Quickly, do I need operating rooms? Do I need different consultants? And do I need additional people? Throw that up to the command center. Let them take care of that for you. Focus on your job, okay? And the administrator, what they're doing the first two hours real quickly, yep, that's, what you, that's what's going on. Okay, got it. What do you need? Got it. Get your teams together and make this happen. And in 15 minutes, they got to have a name, a situational summary that they can put out to their staff and communicate so that we have a physician in charge saying, okay, when, the, when I get someone down here as a triage officer, this is the circumstance, this is what's going on, this is what we got for resources, go. But you have to be able to communicate that to people. You have to be able to ass assemble the staffing that we talked about earlier on. Particularly for the administrator, it's not everyone. Do you need a public information officer down there for a, you know, a, a, you know, a little bus fender bender? No. Um, I, you absolutely need an incident commander, you need security, you need operations almost every single time. The rest of that tree can uh, get filled out. And see, one thing that's really key here is talking about uh, the incident objectives and operational period of time. For the most part, we're breaking down into these categories here. What are we doing the first two hours? What are we doing two to 12? And what are we doing greater than 12? And very importantly, how are we recovering here? Demobilization, how does that happen? Do we need to know that right away? No, but we can define those operational periods and make plans, okay? Trauma team members, this is pretty straightforward. Now we get into what you do sitting here. If you're notified, you go to the emergency room. And where do you go? You don't go into the trauma room. You don't mill about and block the hallway. What you should do is go into a place, that bullpen is a great one, where you can wait your assignment and instruction from the physician in charge or a trauma resource officer. Be present, but be out of the way. They need you, they'll tell you. OR personnel, right away, you don't need to be instructed to do this, okay? This is important too. If everybody knows what it is they need to do, then it works. No more new patients coming back to the room. Immediately, stop, okay? I know Dr. Weiss wants to do that appy. No, stop, we need to figure out what's going on here. What do we have in the way of staff? How many, how many teams do we have here available? In five minutes, we need that information, okay? What we should do also is because Brendan said three, we can expect three. When are we going to have three ORs coming down? Okay, have those time estimates available so you can put that out to the command center. They can push it down so that the folks down in the emergency room know. I got one OR for you now. I'll have three ready for you within the next 20 minutes. That's critical information. And it's not information somebody should have to pick up. It should be pushed back down. And then the rapid assessment form. How many people are familiar with the intranet rapid assessment form sitting here right now? Right, almost nobody. 
And I think that's instructional to you, Mike, right? We talked about this. Nobody even knows what the hell this is, okay? Uh, other, and we'll see it in a moment here. Other employees, what, what should you do? Check in with your charge nurse or administrator. You don't need to run to the emergency room. Don't need to run uh, um, to, the, um, uh, uh, to the labor pool. Just check in and wait for instructions. Non-trauma providers, okay? So if you're not on that trauma team, if you're orthopedics, your neurosurgery, the on-call person should absolutely contact the emergency room, or if you're here, walk down. Stay out of the way, go to the bullpen, wait for instructions. Other people should certainly be available, particularly if we're talking about a large event, you know, that provider can do it. They can reach out and say, you know, um, hey Paul, hey Marcus, we may need some help down here. Um, neurosurgery, least likely actually, if we're talking about high volume categories, but you may need additional providers, but not everybody should rush the emergency room. You're not needed there yet. Okay, stay where you, where you are. So uh, how about administrative and non-ORR personnel? So MD, a charge nurse, if you're on IMT, what do you do? Check in, see what you have available in the way of staff and complete the rapid assessments form so the, the administrators know what's going on. Participate in the roll call. Don't go running anywhere unless you're called. Okay, what do you do if you're just an employee who's not in leadership there? Check in, hey, I'm here so that you know. I'm here, I'm available, I'm ready. So if you don't know this, you go on the internet, you look up HEOP, you go to this rapid assessment form, okay? And it's a piece of paperwork that's supposed to be filled out, okay? We talked about a time interval here, 15 minutes, so that in your area, you're pushing to the command center what you have in the way of personnel, providers, and patients. Now what I will tell you is down in the command center, they're, they're taking it, when I sat there at the last mascot, they're taking it at face value that what you put in there is accurate. And judging from the hands that went up in this room, they're not accurate, okay? People are not using this. And if we're going to continue to use it as a tool, it certainly has to be utilized by our folks. We have to know it's there, that helps. So what happens when we do that? What happens when our leaders can assemble a quick plan, okay? Coach their people in terms of what it is they need, be aware of the resources that we've got? Well, then we can generate this response, okay? We watch a video of, you know, uh, Crosby's team scoring a goal. It's a beautiful little passing demonstration that I can't show you here. But when we behave like that, we definitely, we perform better uh, uh, for our patients and our institution. Because you know what we don't want to do? We don't want to be that institution that for a mass casualty, we had 20 casualties that came here and we failed. Boston for the bombing, they did great work. To be fair, a lot of that was on Jim's end. It's not difficult if you have three to five red casualties to move it through and look like a superstar. Um, we don't know how EMS is going to perform. All we can control is how we're going to perform. Uh, and it does take more than just being able to pick up a knife. Okay, we'll use a stethoscope. It takes a system. A trauma system is what we need to make things work. So what are we doing? We're working on robust job action sheets. We're talking about designee lists. So we have three or four people who really know their jobs. Uh, and I think that is really important with some mandatory education that you can get online. If this interests you at all, it's easy enough to do. And developing CCMC specific templates for the initial assessment, okay? Sitting there and having a template. This is what I need to collect for information to be able to push it forward. Incident action plans. Even though we have, you know, an all systems response, being able to say, hey, you know what? Here's my template for how I'm going to respond for mass casualty or weather event, et cetera. Those are very nice things uh, because not everybody is excited about responding like that. Not everyone's trained to respond like that. Having tools is important. Uh, uh, this guidebook is available to you online. If you have questions about what we actually have in the way of policies and procedures for this, uh, they are on the internet. They're available, including our Code Orange um, multi-casualty event is in here. 
Uh, and that's it. I hope I didn't go over. say is we definitely don't have an online stated active shooter protocol. I know we got um, Mike here and Brendan may want to comment on it. It's something that, that is in the works. Get close to the microphone. Yeah, so you know, it, it's something that you have to be aware of with, with everything that you know, th these types of events happen in the hospital. And <clears throat> I think what I would refer you to is, is Mike here. I think he was going to, he's here. Do you, have, you want to say anything about the training that's upcoming? On yeah, we, we have a training. Uh, um, Together program. Some of you guys have been there before, I'm pretty sure. Uh, we've seen the class now. I encourage you to go. Um, we do have an outline of a policy online. It's an actual response plan. It just kind of goes over. It's in the policy manual. It goes over what the uh, the, the role of uh, hospital would be. If it was an active shooter or an intruder in the building. Uh, but if you can make it to one of the courses, we have one on December first, which is Friday, I believe. Like yeah. Um, and it's in one of the conference rooms at 2 p.m. Uh, it's about an hour and a half, and they go through what the response should be to keep yourself safe as well as your patients safe. If they're if someone's confronted with an active shooter in their area or in the hospital or even on campus, what our plans are for, for those for that response. Um, there's a very simple video online that you can also look at called Run High Fight. It's put on by the Department of Homeland Security. If you don't have time to make it to one of the sessions, you go on that, go online and check that out. It's a very it's like a five-minute video, and they'll give you the uh, tools you need to keep yourselves safe. So how we translate that to HOP and how we react um, with this mass casualty in the hospital, that's something that we have not drilled on, but we need to upcoming, that's going to be something that we have to focus on. Uh, but we'd like to get more people uh, trained in the active shooter response so we can get to that point. And if you can't, it's run, hide, fight, in that order is the way to do it. Steve? Yeah, so my question is, how often do we drill? And knowing that, you know, we've been very, say, dramatic trauma scenes, practice is the key. And I know Chris on fire, but you guys want to bring up the question on purpose. How often do we drill here? Well, I think the, the, the simple answer is not enough, but I think we're, we're, we're doing a better job of, 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 of running the drills and looking at it from different perspectives. I think it's important to, to do it, uh, you know, the clinical aspect in the ED, but what John did in the last disaster was sit up in the command center, which was really helpful in not only understanding what's happening there, but in breaking down the silos. And I think the other aspect of it is activating Code Orange. When we had the house explosion in Manchester, 
we didn't activate it with four or five casualties and then we should have I think the thought was we probably should have on June 2nd when we had the car crash with four small children's we did activate it and some people criticized it at the hospital emergency operation meeting but I think you know we need to lower our threshold and it's okay to be wrong with activating it and we have to drill more and I think we have to teach the DMAP course more and I don't know I'd be interested in what Jim and John have to say um, you also added on the state level uh, we haven't had, to my knowledge, a statewide active drill in a number of years since we had the uh, interstate drill probably going back seven or eight years ago. Most of the drills that occur on the regional or state level are tabletop, um, and most of them are just involving what we would call ESF-8, which is the support function for medical. There are 19 different support function groups around the state, and each one separated regionally that focus on smaller spots of what the big response plan would be, and we don't do enough of that intra-operational drilling at all. Uh, it continues to be a point of discussion when we have our regional and statewide meetings, and there is some buy-in finally to get that moving forward and do more drilling. Yeah, just a couple of comments on that. One is uh, Bradley has every other year. Yes. They have a drill. Um, uh, we attended two years ago. We were the only hospital system to attend in terms of uh, uh, hospital level providers. So, I mean, that's a little sobering. It was also a little sobering to see uh, uh, everybody in this room has flown out of Bradley, uh, to see just like here on an off shift, the number of people who are here uh, uh, can be like, wow, that's a gut check in terms of how are we gonna respond to this? You got, a, you got less than 10 people ready to respond to an airplane crashing at Bradley uh, at any given time in terms of you know the, the fire team that's there. So it's, uh, yeah, it's eye-opening. Uh, one more question. The, the question I have is if, if, you know, if something like what happened in Vegas happened here in one of our concert calls and if it, if it closed the murder, um, obviously that's a, that's a horrific event in vision, but you know, because we have a lot of pediatricians and other folks here in the audience and uh, the question is, beyond what happens at the local hospital, what should be the response of, of the general community to something like that, especially physicians that, you know, in the first instance is going to go help. I mean, the general community want to donate blood. I mean, that's what they do, right? So what, just a general comment on that. What should they be, how should they prepare? What should they be doing? How should they be thinking? How can they be helping, perhaps, in a situation like that? So I think just a simple, so the, the, the system that we have in place is all the surgeons who are on call, no to respond if a code orange gets activated. And the answer is yes, we need help and we'll take all the help we can get. But as John very eloquently said in his talk, we need you to respond appropriately, which is not to go and clog up the ED. It's to go to the physician's lounge where the labor pool is and to, um, to wait until you're, you're called upon. What's interesting about the whole blood thing is after every um, mass casualty event, they talk about, oh, there's, you know, we, there's a call for blood donors. There is universally not a need for blood at these sorts of events. So, so if you're, if you if you if you work here and want to come and help, please do come. And I think that's important. But um, but just don't clog up the emergency department. We have enough trouble for you know the, when we get one or two activations at a time at how crowded things get. Um, for the community pediatricians who may not be affiliated necessarily with this hospital or may be affiliated with outside hospitals, first I would say be aware of whichever hospitals you're affiliated with, what their policy and procedure would be. Look into the emergency credentialing program for the state. 
because that will allow you to function without people wondering, should I let you touch a patient in my hospital? And definitely do not respond to the scene. Uh, EMS will do what they can do, but the last thing they need is more people on scene and having to figure out who is whom and what credentials they have and what they should or shouldn't be doing. But as a good illustration to that, um, uh, one of my former nannies uh, was at that concert in Las Vegas under the bleachers um, with, you know, surrounded by folks. And you can imagine her father, who lived in the area, panicking. He didn't get within two miles of the scene because everybody in there, you know, everybody, for whatever reasons, you know, uh, between emergency responders, family members, et cetera, gridlock, an absolute mess. And I can promise you, if we had 50 casualties coming here, um, uh, that's exactly what would happen. So your best bet is if you're not in-house or a trauma provider um, or a routine provider here, there's not going to be a whole lot you're going to do other than, you know, probably cause problems on the roadway.